What's up, guys? This episode is brought to you by RX Bar, a whole food protein bars with simple, real ingredients. Their bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. They label the core ingredients, egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of the package and the ingredients that make up texture and taste on the back of the package, such as 100% real cacao, coconut, and etc. Beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX Bars actually taste delicious. They found creating a bar made from real, whole food ingredients actually tastes better than anything out there. So how did they start? In 2013, RX Bar called BS on protein bars. They couldn't find a bar out there that wasn't full of artificial ingredients, fillers, preservatives, and just general BS. RX Bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds with no BS. Nutrition is key and vital in recovery, especially in early recovery. So for 25% off your first order, again, that's 25%, go to rxbar.com forward slash recovery. That's rxbar.com forward slash recovery. Okay, let's get started. Recovery Elevator, episode 140. It was so crazy. It was just really, you know, you feel everything. And I think we become so used to like anesthetizing ourselves to like pain. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,127 days. On today's podcast, we've got Heather. She's been sober since January 1st, 2017. She's 37 years old. Her mom passed away with 19 days in sobriety, and you know what? She just kept moving forward. Nice job, Heather. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Speaking of Cafe RE, like I mentioned before, Cafe RE Blue, the second private recovery group, is going to be capped at 200 members. We are about 25 away from that number. So please sign up if you want to be part of this awesome recovery community. It's confidential. Only the people in the group can see who's in it and what is being said. And then after that, there'll be a wait group for the third group to start probably one to two months. Okay, let's get started. I got the idea for today's podcast episode from an email that a listener sent me. It's a Dharma Punks podcast. It's about anxiety and depression. And if you want to hear the actual podcast, you need to go to recoveryelevator.com, go to the episode show notes for 140, and you'll find a link to the podcast there. The Dharma Punks guy sheds light on depression and anxiety in ways that I've never really heard before. 
Now, you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, Paul. This podcast should be about alcohol, not depression and anxiety. Well, I hate to break it to you. It's all related. And I'm going to try to tie this in. The episode I did just before this 139 was about post-acute withdrawal syndrome, post-acute withdrawal symptoms. And a lot of those symptoms, the syndrome that can last up to two years. But again, don't worry about the two years. Just take this thing one day at a time. Anxiety and depression is a big part of that. A lot of that is the dopamine levels, the GABA levels in our brain. They're trying to reach a new equilibrium. Oftentimes, they go way too high, then they come back down too low. And this process, without the aid of alcohol as a coping mechanism, can bring feelings of anxiety and depression. But guess what? Those feelings serve a purpose. So here are some notes that I took while listening to this podcast episode. Depression serves a purpose. It's a message from the unconscious to the conscious mind. It's trying to get us to do this certain task. And when we do this task, it almost always goes away. It goes away referring to their depression. Symptoms of depression are drivers to make change, and we have been ignoring them for so long with alcohol. Now, I find that huge. Even though we're experiencing post-acute withdrawal symptoms, the syndrome, we may feel like the feelings of depression, anxiety are just out of the blue coming from completely nowhere, but they all serve a purpose. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for a little bit of time, on episode 118, I talked about my struggle with depression well into recovery, and guess what? I listened to those feelings, and I made a lot of life changes. Fortunately, the black dog, aka depression, is in the cage at this moment. Back to my notes. The episode talks about prioritizing self-oriented goals. This would be financial gain. And acquiring more possessions at the expense of our real meaningful connections is what lies very much at the epicenter of our depression and most depression. That the more we prioritize achievements, secure work situations, and the less we focus on building true connections with other human beings where we are vulnerable, honest, and we can be who we really are, we will experience an increase in depression. Hmm. So when we are focusing on the financial and material gains, we diminish our abilities to process emotional losses. Emotional losses could be the loss of a family member, the loss of a pet, a family friend, a neighbor, the fact that Third Eye Blind didn't do their 20-year anniversary tour, didn't make a stop at Bozeman. Come on! But when we focus on the financial, material gains, we can't overcome the fact that they didn't play How's It Gonna Be in My Hometown. These uncomfortable emotions that we experience in sobriety pushes us to detach from our daily chores, of going to work, of acquiring more material items, and forces us to address emotional issues that have been overlooked in our lives. I can tell you from personal experience, this holds water for me. When I first got sober, and I mentioned this on my podcast, I replaced work for alcohol. About a year into sobriety, my uncle passed away, which was extremely difficult. Four months after he passed away, I was walking down Main Street in Bozeman, Montana, and I pulled out my phone to call him, not even thinking. I sat down and was like, whoa, I have not really processed the loss of my uncle. And I feel like after I did the episode 118 early this summer, when I came off the antidepressants, I was finally able to process and grieve the loss of my uncle. And it was those feelings of depression that caused me to make a change in my life. Okay, back to my notes. The podcast discusses a paper on depression from Paul Andrews called The Bright Side of Being Blue. He says, The depression forces a bunch of changes in our lives to coordinate slow and methodical changes to personal issues in our lives. The symptoms of depression are there to push us to make significant changes in our lives. 
The episode talks about some of the symptoms of depression. One of them is called anhedonia, which is where we no longer receive pleasure from things we used to receive pleasure from. When we experience anhedonia, this allows us to focus on what needs to be repaired. Insert vision quest here. Now, I don't know about you, but I experienced anhedonia at the tail end of my drinking. No, correct that. For about five years previous to me getting sober, and also when I got sober. Alcohol, when I was drinking, zapped the pleasure away from all the hobbies that I like to do. And then when I got sober, it was like, shit, what now? And especially I remember around episode 118, which is I think in May of 2017, the anhedonia was pretty freaking strong. Insert vision quest here. I need to discover what Paul Churchill really liked to do. And I did that. This summer, I did the Ridge Run. It was a 20-mile run. I know that I like to be outdoors, be hiking, be running, be biking. That's what I love to do. Another symptom of depression, which does serve a purpose, is a lack of confidence. You know, when we're not feeling up to par and we don't want to talk to friends, we don't feel comfortable in those social situations. Well, that feeling serves a purpose. It discourages us from chasing limited resources in this world, a.k.a. financial gain. So the evolutionary design of depression is to pull us away from all the performative components in our lives, and we are forced to redirect our attentions to getting over a loss or pro-tribal actions, which is basically building our community, finding our tribe. Another purpose of that empty feeling that we can sometimes feel when we quit drinking is that it suppresses competition and aggression so we can elicit sympathy and empathy from others. Here's the good news. 80% of people who have depression or experience depression, they experience a long-term benefit from their depression, which means it got these people to make a major life reprioritization. They decided that their work was not more important than their personal lives. So four out of five people recognized these uncomfortable symptoms and used them as a driver to make the change in their lives. Depression is basically the right hemisphere of the brain saying to the left side of the brain, hey dude, You've got a huge house, two trucks, a camper, four jet skis, a snowmobile, and a 10-acre parcel in Palm Springs. We need to start building meaningful relationships and process grieve attachment losses. And here's what the Buddha said about depression. When we have skewed too far from balancing our lives with work and creating meaningful relationships, this is depression. The very root of human suffering comes from when we constantly think of ourselves in competition with others. The story of how we are doing compared with other people, what others think about me, whether I'm achieving enough, is what pulls us away from the deeply beneficial, altruistic, immersive connections. That's a mouthful right there, but basically it's saying depression is when we focus on financial gain, the material successes, and we ignore our personal lives, ignore the pro-tribal actions that create deep and meaningful altruistic bonds with other real-life people. Now, it's easy to misinterpret these negative feelings we can sometimes feel in early sobriety. The thought of solving our depression through acquiring more possessions and finances does make sense in a capitalistic culture. And if we give in to this hype, the most common outcome is anxiety and depression. Now, the greatest gift we can give to ourselves is to balance our lives in a meaningful way. Again, if you want to listen to this podcast, which I highly recommend you do, it was a game changer for me, really cool stuff that I learned and will implement in my life. Go to recoveryelevator.com, episode show notes 140. Okay, and before we get to Heather, I want to mention that registration opens for the Peru 2018 Recovery Elevator Retreat. There are only 15 spots available. On November 10th, go ahead and sign up. It's going to be a trip of a lifetime. All righty. Heather, how are you? 
I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Heather, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Um, today will be 269 days. If my math is correct, hang on, I'm counting on my fingers. That's January 2nd, <laughs> no, 1st. I'm just kidding. You told me the 1st. January 1st <laughs> of this year. Nice job. You you stuck with it. A lot of other people had that same goal, but here we are, September 27th, and, and you're still doing it. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah. Before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, and uh, what do you like to do for fun, Heather? Sure. So I'm 37. I live in Los Angeles, California. I've been here about seven years. I grew up in, in South Texas and then moved to New York when I was 19 and spent about nine years there. I work in um, the entertainment industry, so I work for a small cable network, like working on the programming side. So working with writers and actors and directors to make movies and what I like to do for fun. I love going to movies. I love TV. It's part of I would say it's research, but it's really what I love to, to do. I like to work out. Um, I do boot camp a couple of times a week. Um, I love doing yoga and hiking, lots of great hiking places in L.A. Yeah, and I have an identical twin sister who is my best friend that I hang out with all the time and, and her little dog, Stevie. Heather, do you remember the Micro Machine commercials? Uh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> the only reason I say that is you, you are talking a mile a minute. And I, I can, oh, I'm sorry. No, you're okay. Yeah. Just let me let's just slow it down just anyway. a little bit. <laughs> but I, I got all that. But I started to take notes. It's like, oh, oh no, that's not going to happen. She's just flying I by. Ever since I talk too fast, you just have to, you know, it's like to get it all out. So I'll slow down. Hey, one thing we do embrace in sobriety is being who we are. And if you talk fast, then don't change a thing. Yeah, yeah, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And uh, listeners, Heather sent me an email on September 10th, and there's a lot of great things we're going to touch up upon in this interview. But there's one paragraph, one excerpt that I want to read right now just to get this interview started. And here goes. Heather says, to most people, I was fine. I have a good job, a nice apartment, a new car. I eat well, exercise. But the alcohol was ruining me. It was ruining my ability to have an honest relationship to achieve my career goals, to do all these creative things I know I'm capable of. Instead, it became a constant mantra of tomorrow. And Heather, one thing I say all the time is focus on the similarities and not the differences. But I could have written that paragraph word for word. That's where mm -hmm. I'm at. And my, in my pathway through this addiction is I'm solely focusing on the similarities and not the differences. But I know a lot of people out there can relate to what you just said that alcohol was just crushing me spiritually, mentally, and physically, which basically what I take from that paragraph. And yeah, just comment on that paragraph. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I, you know, when I first started listening to you, I remember you said something about, if you Google, do I drink too much? You probably do. <laughs> and and I think, you know, for a long time, I, you know, with the hangovers, I'd say, oh, I'm not doing this again. I'm not, you know, I'm going to cut back. And I think... You know, I, I've always felt like a creative person. Like for a long time, I wanted to be an actress, and then, you know, when I started to study it and do it in New York City, it became clear that that wasn't for me. But I look back on it now, and I think a lot of what my insecurities were stemming from was the anxiety. And then I tried to numb it with alcohol, so I became even more afraid to do this creative thing to put myself out there. And then when I started to be, I think maybe I'll want to write, the, just the drinking also made me say, okay, well, I'll work on X project and then I'll abandon it. And then, you know, tomorrow I'll do it. So I, my twin sister, you know, I have an identical twin sister and she's, you know, to compare, you know, it's hard not to compare yourself to other people, like compare and despair. But I think when you have an identical twin, that becomes even harder not to do. And she's 
very successful creatively and you go, I know I have that ability too, but I think a lot of the reason that I haven't gotten there was because of the drinking. I understand 100% what you're saying and the constant mantra of saying tomorrow it's going to happen. Yeah, and today I still sometimes say tomorrow we're going to do this and that, but I'm much more in the moment. And explain how that is for you being in the moment more these days. I think uh, it's just, I feel just clarity, like waking up, just having plan, like having plans and not making excuses. I mean, one of the big things though that I really wanted to talk about is that is kind of what got me to this point because, you know, I think I never said I'm going to stop drinking or I'm going to go to AA or I want to, you know, this is, you know, this is ruining my life because I never had any of those moments that said like, you know, the people I hung out with drank more than me. You know, like I said, I got out, you know, I went to work, I got up to work out, I did all this stuff. But I think losing my mom really was a trigger. And I think that sort of led me to the top. And I think just you, I think one of the things that I'd always thought about was like, what's the worst that could happen in my life and how I, how I deal with it. And I think at the time I thought, well, you just drink through it, right? Like when bad things happen. Mm-hmm. You find out, like, you just drink through it, and I think that sort of was, like, there were a lot of, there were a few events leading up to that, but that was, like, the major turning point for me. Sure, and we've already gotten way ahead of ourselves, and <laughs> I apologize for that. Let's back it up a little bit, and I do want to cover, you know, your, the passing of your mom when you had 19 days of sobriety. You also broke up with a boyfriend who was hiding his drinking from you. I want to touch up upon that, but let's back it up. So you're sure. 37 years old right now. When did you first realize that uh, you perhaps you know, don't drink normally? I think there's always been varying stages of that. And I moved, um, like I said, I moved to New York at 19 from a small town in Texas. It was probably as big of a change as you can imagine. You know, I, you know, I went from paying like, I don't know, $400 a month for an apartment to paying like 900 You know, it was like everything was so crazy in as far as like a life adjustment and I got a job in a bar um, and that pretty much became my life as far as you know working and I was in school I was always in school doing internships but paying my way by bartending and you mentioned that your experience you know that really sets you on a path and I think when you're predisposed and also you can seem like a normal drinker right when you are with people who oftentimes drink way more than you do. So I was sort of in the middle of the pack as far as that went. So mm-hmm. I think going to New York and bartending and, you know, it's after hours and it's all of that, waking up and going, this doesn't feel normal, but I'm doing all the things I should be doing. So Yeah, you're drinking fine. like everybody else around you. It's pretty easy to normalize it. Yeah, and, you know, I lived, you know, a lot of people talk about DUIs or, you know, trouble. I lived in a city where I didn't have to drive, right? So... Um, when I was, I think, 22, my, my driver, driver's license was stolen in a bar, and I never got a new one for, you know, six years because I never thought I'd leave New York City, and I didn't have to drive. And when I would visit people, it was, oh, I don't have a license. But, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, well, I didn't have a license, so I didn't have to worry about what I drank and driving, right? Sure. So, um, and then I moved to L.A., and, you know, it's Uber and Lyft, and, you know, in some ways in L.A., it's cheaper to take those than it is to park in some places. So, you know, it was like my life was very much designed where I didn't ever worry about putting myself or other people in danger as a result of that. Um, So I think all of those things, but I think in the last, like when I really started to feel like it was a problem was in the last probably really a year, year and a half, you know, the hangover started to be worse. You know, sometimes I'd have three glasses and wake up feeling terrible. And then also just a lot of the tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow with, Mm -hmm. you know, things, the creative things I wanted to do. 
Yeah, and when you realize you said for the past year or so, what were some of the rules you put in place? I know you probably tried to curtail your drinking before you got on <laughs> iTunes and searched for recovery podcasts and went to AA and things like that. Yeah, so what were some of those plans that you put in place? Well, oh, yeah, I have a lot of plans. Um, you know, like I never really kept alcohol in the house. And, you know, if I, if I, because usually I, if I bought what I, what I had, I would drink. I, uh, you know, I won't drink during the week. You know, I won't, you know, only have X amount on the, you know, on the, on the weekends. You know, I did um, a few, you know, I do cleanses. It's LA, two people love their cleanses. So I would do cleanses. You know, I did the whole 30. Actually, I started last year, um, I did a whole 30. And yeah, so I could go a month, but it was really like white knuckling when is this over, you know, and then also sort of just, you know, doing the month and then picking right back up where I started. So tell me more about picking right back up where you started, because I did a lot of those 30 days and you, you convince yourself, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. And then when you ramp back up, you, you start, it's just like, wow, I never stopped. Was it the same with you? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, you know, do 30 days, 31 days, like a bottle of wine or four or five drinks or, you know, I mean, losing count on the weekends, you know, I was a pretty, like, I think, you know, responsible. I mean, drinking every day during the week, but, you know, two glasses, a bottle, just a lot. But, um, but you know, then really the binge drinking on the weekends. Yeah. And talk to me about the boyfriend that you separated with when you found out that he was hiding his drinking. Was this before you got sober or after you got sober? It was before. It's what, it's sort of, it's sort of what led me to this. I think sometimes they say we meet our mirror, you know, and the person that we choose. And this is definitely the case, which I think ultimately was a gift to me, um, obviously not in the time, but we met, it was a year, so it was a year ago, and when I met him, I was actually doing, um, it was, we were set up by friends, I was doing the whole 30, so on that first few dates, like, I didn't, yeah, I wasn't drinking, you know, and he, he was like, oh, you know, I don't really, you know, he had a couple drinks, but, you know, it wasn't anything concerning, and then, you know, once I got off the whole 30, it was wine tastings, and, you know, like, boozy brunches, and all of that, and, I couldn't keep up with him. And I'm not like, you know, I have had friends that are like, oh, he's the one who had the problem. You didn't. And so, you know, I'm not laying blame on anyone because I think it was what I needed to, like what his, his problem was what I needed to, to see about my own. But, you know, I said to him once, like, I can't keep up with you. And he said, oh, you'll never be able to, which should have sent off red flags. But it was really <laughs> That's um, nice of him. But the more, yeah, so, <laughs> he'll never be able to keep up with me. But the more, the, the further into the relationship we got, you know, I started to wake up even more hungover, you know, because before where I maybe would have only had four drinks, now I'm having eight. I was never really a blackout drinker, but when I started, the more time, you know, we, I started to, to blackout, and there were a couple times where I blacked out and said things that I honestly to this day don't know what I said, where he got upset, and in our conversations, and this all, you know, it all becomes clear later, but he was like, it's not the alcohol, it's what you said, <laughs> which is. Um, which is funny because it's like, well, I don't say those kind of things. And I don't, you know, I remember what I say if I'm not drinking. So obviously the drinking is what's causing that. Sure. So this, this went on, but as the relationship progressed, you know, he was, you know, he wanted to be married and he wanted kids and he was, you know, doing all the things that I, saying all the things I wanted to hear. So we moved really quickly and we decided to move in together. Hmm, the plot um, thickens. And, you know, I... I was concerned about the drinking. I brought it up. I said, you know, he's like, oh, we should cut back. And I was like, we should. And I think maybe I did a little bit, but when we were together, it still, you know, it still kept going. We moved in together. Um, and he was a salesman. He was, in, he was, he traveled. So he was gone on the road a lot, which later I realized the schedule was perfectly designed for someone to hide their drinking. Mm -hmm. 
So moving together in November, Thanksgiving, and that, it became very hard for him to hide. And I realized, and like before Thanksgiving, we got up early. I was cooking for a bunch of people. We were supposed to get up early. And he had drank a bottle of bourbon the, that night before. Mm. And a uh, bullet bourbon. And wasn't able to, like, get up in the morning and help. And that really, like, I was like, this isn't good. This is, you know, this is, it's, it's worth, you know, and I think I had been drinking a lot then to kind of hide my concern about what he was doing. And so he drank the bourbon. I was upset. I can, we, we had a talk. And then there were a series of events that led up to me seeing how bad it had gotten. And then I was finding bottles in the trash. And when I confronted him about it, we've been living together for a month at this point. I confronted him about it. And it was just complete denial. And then there was a moment where he said, well, you know what? It's fine. I can just stop. We'll both stop. And that was the moment where I thought, if we break up, I'll be fine because I don't have a problem. So at this time, you mentioned like you were drinking to hide the to hide that y- you, your feelings that he had a drinking problem. Did you ever feel like you were hiding anything from him or hiding something from yourself? I feel like when I read that part of the email, I was like, oh wow, they're both hiding from each other. They're drinking, but it sounds like you weren't you weren't quite at that spot where he was yet. But you were you hiding it from him as well? No, I think honestly, I mean, because I saw his drinking, it honestly made me cut back. You know, I mean, I remember you know coming coming home and saying, oh, I'm going to go for a run. Do you want to come with me? And he's like, no, I'm good. And he just stayed home and drank, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, or, you know, saying like, let's go do something. And he's like, oh, let's go get, you know, mimosas or whatever. And so it really, because it made me look at myself and go, I don't, like, I don't want to be sitting home on a beautiful, sunny afternoon, you know, with the shades drawn drinking, sure. you know? Sure. So he was kind of like um, the writing on the wall of where this was going for you. Yeah, it, it, 100%. Gotcha. Gotcha. But was there a time, uh, I mean, I, I know there is because there was, there was with a lot of people that you're hiding it from yourself. And when did you finally, were you able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, wait a second, this is a problem that I need to tackle. So his drinking, that, that moment, actually it was that conversation that, and his drinking had already started to, to make me worried and to make me question my own more than I ever had in the past. And then, because this, you know, this was like, we're going to get married, we're going to have kids, all this talk. And it was, it was built on this, like, house of cards lie, right, that you're not able to handle yourself, you know, you're not able to, so how could you, you know, build all of this? But I think that conversation that we had, because basically once I confronted him, he wanted out of the relationship, right? So Really? Did that surprise yeah. you, or what was your, what was your feelings on that? So I just so then the day that the day that we had this conversation, I got my I got a phone call that my um, childhood friend's father had been killed in a in a motorcycle accident. Shoot. So we we literally we had this this conversation. He said, you know, I'll cut back. We'll talk about it. I got the call. I had to go back to Texas for the service, and then it was as though the conversation that we'd had had never happened. I mean, so, I, the reason why I bring that up again, it just shows the insidious nature of this beast called alcohol is where when we are in our addiction and our habits that we will place alcohol in front of everything. Your boyfriend uh, basically placed alcohol in front of you and everybody else. You know, I'm, I'm moving out. Yeah. I'm breaking up with you. I'm not ready to break up with alcohol, which sucks. And a lot of people yeah. lose everything before they finally decide to give up alcohol. And it sounds like that was not the case with you. It was not the case for me. And, and we're you know, the lucky ones to have to realize that our priorities were completely out of whack. And and so after that, you know, we're in Thanksgiving time, you're cooking alone, your 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 uh, your boyfriend at that time drank a, a bottle of bourbon rum the night before you're cooking alone. 
And, you know, what was, what was the time frame from that to January 1st? Like what was the impetus that really forced you to make that jump into sobriety? Well, so after, um, so I left to go to the, I left to go back to Texas for the funeral and he made, he, he moved everything out. He was almost completely out of my apartment by the time I got back from the funeral, had all his things, almost all of his things out. Um, by Christmas day, he had everything out. So he, uh, he even made an excuse to not, we were supposed to have like one last conversation, you know, before, before, you know, everything was done. And, you know, he made up some excuse about like traffic and the weather and he couldn't, you know, couldn't make it. And then said to me, like, you know, maybe you went down the road, we can be friends, we can grab a drink together, which, you know, it was just, it was just sort of the icing on the cake about, you know, that we would grab a drink where I'm like, you're not even seeing the problem here. So yeah, confirmation, much you made the right decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, it was. I was still at this point. I was still drinking and to cope with it. And but I sort of knew. I started reading um, a Happier Hour, which I think is the next book on the book club. Yeah. So I had during this, like after this, I had just sort of. I started reading a lot about addiction and the things that people do, and just to sort of understand like why he could have promised all these things and then just completely erased me from his life. So I started reading that book, and it was the light bulb, right? The light bulb went off reading that book. And so, you know, so it's Christmas and we're broken up and I'm dealing with that. And, and then I just, so I started reading the book and then I read the hundred day challenge and who's the hundred day challenge by I, it's, there's a block that this is where I found it. It was, well, I think I thought she mentioned it in a happier hour, but I sort of found these two resources at the same time. So there's a blog called, Tired of thinking about drinking. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And I stumbled across this blog, and I read the challenge. And if you would don't mind, I'd like to read it. Of course, yeah. Um, because this is really this is like when I read it. So this is sort of after the breakup, like right before I stopped stopped drinking. And it says, "I will not drink for a hundred days, no matter what. I can cry, but I will not drink. I can go to bed or go home early. I might feel distressed, but I will not drink. Bad things might happen, but I will not drink." Incredibly shitty things may happen to someone around me or my neighbor or my friend's friend's grandmother, but there will be no booze. Funerals, weddings, amputation. I'm not drinking for 100 days, no matter what happens, no matter what. Now, you had no shortage of shitty things happen to you, especially probably 15 <laughs> days after January 1st, 2017, and life happens. That is going to happen regardless, and we need to keep in mind that life doesn't happen to us. It just happens. It's how right. we respond to it. But I want to comment on the paragraph that you just read that at the end of the day, you know, spiritually, mentally, you know, calling upon higher powers, this and that, no one's holding a gun to our head and it is a definitive decision. No matter what happens, we're not going to drink. And I had to relive that again with cigarettes on June 24th, moving forward, no matter what, I was not going to have a cigarette. And I remember what it was like when I quit drinking, no matter what, doesn't matter what now right. happens in life, not to me, just happens. I'm not going to have a drink. And you... I had to go through a pretty big obstacle and, and talk to us about that with your mom. So my mom had been sick for a long time. You know, it's funny, like it's, she was sick for so long. Like I actually went back, you know, when you go through like emails and stuff and I didn't realize how long it had been, but pretty much like over a decade she'd been sick. Uh, she had emphysema and COPD from smoking. So congratulations on quitting. Yeah, thank um, you. It was hard. And I smoked for a long time too. So I know how hard it is to, to quit. I basically, there were a lot of things that led up to, the breakup, but then the challenge, I emailed the woman, the woman that um, the blog tired of thinking about drinking is a sober coach and she does like sober pen pal stuff. And so on her blog, she said, I'm looking for, I'm, I'm going to give away some scholarships 
free, and she her fees are very low as far as like what her services. But she says I'm going to give away free coaching services. Send me your story, and I'll pick five. And then for a hundred days, if you do the challenge, I'll be your sober ten pal. That's awesome. Um, and this is right right before January first. So I sent my story in. Two days later, she posted, I don't know what I was thinking. I can't pick a story. Everyone's story is so compelling, and everyone is dealing with such huge things. I'm going to pick at random. And so I went to sleep, and I said to myself, if I get picked, this is a sign that I need to do this challenge. And I woke up the next morning, and she, I've been selected. So then I'm like, okay, there's no backing out now, right? Like, I've set accountability for myself. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, well, I'm going to quit. And I, it's funny because I picked, like, January 6th was the day that I was going to stop. <laughs> And then, because I was going to this really fancy restaurant, I'm like, I'm going to want wine. And then I woke up with the worst hangover ever, and I said, it's going to be January 1st, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to do 100 days, and I'll see how it goes. How did it go? So I thought, like, I think I told you in my email that I thought that, like, I had a few black tie events to go to for work and some social things planned, and I thought that would be the big challenge. But, like, 10 days in, 9 days in, it was. I had an, a big black tie event, super flashy, like, Stevie Wonder was performing. It was, you know, a bunch of coworkers. And so, you know, I was not drinking and that was, you know, I was, that was different, you know. I ended up taking care of some drunk people, so that made me feel good about not being one of them. But then 10 days in, um, my mom got really, my mom got sick for the last time and ended up in the hospital. And then, uh, sorry, <laughs> I was going to get emotional. And then 15 days later, she passed away. Sorry to hear about that, Heather. So, um, so, you know, I was, uh, the five days leading up, she was in the hospital, she was on a ventilator and just dealing with that sober was like, so it was so crazy. It was just really, you know, you feel everything. And I think we become so used to like anesthetizing ourselves to like pain. So that was like that. Yeah, that was definitely a challenge. And I thought, um, sorry. No, you're good. I thought if I, if I, if I don't keep doing this, not drinking, um, there's no going back, right? Like, what's the thing to, like, you know, I just pictured myself, like, sitting on the bar stool at, like, four in the afternoon with, like, whiskey or something, like, you know, like, what's going to, like, send me over the edge, like, losing her? So, you know, I said, I'm going to just keep doing these 100 days, right? Like, just, just no matter what, funerals, like, amputations, like, I'm going to do it, so. No matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it was so, like, you know, then playing the service and then having friends come, I had a friend that came from out of town and got really drunk, and there was a situation that I had to deal with the day after my mom's celebration of life, and I had to do it all, you know, and I'm so grateful that, like, I was able to do that. I was probably the only person not drinking at the service, but it's, it's I'm so grateful for that clarity and to, like, mourn her without, like, numbing. And, you know, there are days where you wake up and you're just like, all I want to do is just not feel this. Mm-hmm. Sorry. But yeah, but I mean, I think that's, that's really what did it. That's really what, you know, um, and then somewhere around like day 60 or 70, like I started to really see, see things even more clearly. I want to comment on the sentence you just said, there are days you wake up when you say, all you want to do is not feel this, but that is life. And for about a decade of my life, I was, I, I was escaping what it was to be human, to feel the emotions that really normal human beings, my brother, my parents, my other friends who are normal drinkers that they feel on a daily basis. And, I'm sick and tired of, I was, and I still am. I, I'm coming off, I came off antidepressants in June for that very reason is I wanted to feel these emotions. And you mentioned that could have been a tipping point for you, Heather. I've, 
I mean, you, you had a damn good excuse to drink. 100-day challenge, well, they did say funeral, but they didn't talk about your mom day 15. <laughs> day yeah. 5, I might have been able to hang to, to, to crack it. But you, God, I mean, this is amazing. You made it through, and you're right. That could have been a tipping point where, like, I have another drink in me. I don't know if I have another recovery in me, and I know that for a fact. And, and you, you were given every reason in the book to drink, and that would have been a tough one to come back from. So I hope you know how amazing of a feat that was. And your mom is so proud of you right now as we speak, because that is amazing sobriety fuel. And, you know, you stay sober for yourself and that's all I'm doing it for is myself. I'm not staying sober for the recovery elevator audience. I apologize, guys. I'm not, I'm staying sober for myself. <laughs> and, right. but there's a lot of sobriety fuel out there and the audience is definitely sobriety fuel. And your mom, that's gotta be great sobriety fuel, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I like, you know, I just, I mean, I feel her with me and I just think like how proud she'd be, you know? So, Oh, she's being incredibly proud, incredibly proud. And so when did, when did AA come into the, the picture here? I, I mentioned, uh, you sent me an email on September 10th and then email, you, you mentioned you, you attended AA and got a sponsor or you still go to AA? Um, I am probably not probably enough in my, in my sponsor's eyes. I think also too work has sort of taken over my life and in like a big way just with, um, what's going on. So yeah, I, you know, I am still going and I, I, I think, you know, I told her I know that I'm, I'm kind of afraid of the steps, so that's something that that we're working on. But I oh to talk about how you wanted me to talk about how AA came into the picture. Yeah, just wondering. It was one day woke up like I I need to go. I need more support. What how how that transition happen? Um, I think that so I'm not really sure because you know obviously everything I dealt with like in the first couple months it's a little bit of a blur. But somewhere around like day sixty or seventy. I started, I was, you know, I was thinking I can't do this alone, right? Like I was feeling, you know, and I have, um, I have, a, you know, a close circle. I'm not super out telling everybody I quit drinking. Um, I'm still finding my way there, but I just, I was feeling very lonely about talking about it with people and I was afraid to go to AA and I never wanted to go because I never thought I'd be there, right? Like I'm, I don't need to go, you know, do that. So sort of in the way that that scholarship and that silver pen talk came about, it's like you put it out there and then things happen, which is so weird. But I had messaged a friend who who lives in Canada and we she used to live in LA and I had told her about my breakup and she without me saying much more, she revealed that she was in recovery. And I said to her I said to her, uh, can you tell me more about that? And it was really because of her and she she got sober in LA and sent me some information about her favorite meetings and then connected to a friend of hers and said, I think you should talk to her. And that's really what led me. And I ended up going, actually I went to one meeting before that I walked outside of one meeting and I couldn't go in. I just, I stopped and I was like, I can't do this. And then I contacted her friend and she was the one who met me at my first meeting. And, um, and now she's actually my sponsor. That's awesome. Yeah. And don't worry about the steps. You and everybody else who's ever done them has had a lot of trepidation before doing the steps, including myself. But really, the steps, it can be boiled down to this, this simple as everybody, alcoholic or not, should do the steps. It's just a great way to move forward to grow as a human being in general. And that's, I think that's the best way to look at the steps. And yeah, right. walk us through a typical day in your recovery today. What does your recovery portfolio look like? How are you doing it today? You know, I mean, I, I read a lot. I listen to the podcast, to your podcast, and I read, you know, I read a lot of, I don't want to say self-help, but I do read, like, 
I just started listening to The Naked Mind and Happy Hour books like that. I, I follow a lot of like sober blog, uh, sober um, bloggers or Instagrammers. Um, I look at a lot of those like in the mornings, like when I get up. I've been working on a meditation practice. I think it's still um, a work in progress. Sort of fallen off a little bit. It, it will always be a work in progress. <laughs> and I'm not saying like um, I've I have reached a level of mastery. It's always a work in progress for everybody. You know, I did a I did a, a meditation retreat last year before I got before I stopped drinking, and you know, and I remember I remember thinking something about my spirituality um, that was missing, and it's and I realized that it was it was the drinking. Like that's what was preventing me from like finding that. And so, you know, I did a week-long meditation, no talking, silent meditation retreat. And I think about that now, like how much I drank right before I went on the retreat and right, and, and then how much I drank after. And I think sometimes now when I think about that, the meditation, it's like there was always something missing in that for me. And I think the drinking has really, the not drinking has helped me connect that, connect to that more. So I try to meditate. You know, I work out a lot. One of the things that I always envied about people was people that could get up at, you know, six in the morning and work out. Um, but then I was like, well, if you don't drink, then you're not hungover, and that becomes a lot easier. So, <laughs> what is this magical um, so, serum they are drinking <laughs> to be able to work out at 6 a.m.? Well, they're just not drinking in general. <laughs> they're just not drinking. <laughs> so now two days a week usually. Uh, I missed this morning because uh, um, I was on here, but I do a, a 6 a.m. boot camp um, usually two days a week. Um, and I find I do a lot of yoga, which to me is sort of like a meditation, and I yeah. find a lot of like – strengthen that. Um, and, you know, I think I'm still just sort of building my portfolio. And, you know, I, I'm always, um, I always admire people who are like, I get up at six and I do these, these readings. And I'm, you know, I read a lot for work. So I'm just trying to find ways. I mean, podcasts really are the best way for me to, you know, to hear people's stories. You said like 15 seconds ago, I'm still finding ways to build my portfolio. And that's fine. And that's and me as well with over a little over three years of sobriety. You know, if, if you are thinking about quitting drinking or wanting to make that step, it's not like, you know, Heather with right now 269 days of sobriety has her recovery portfolio completely full and figured out. It's an always evolving process, just like the meditation. It's always ongoing. And Heather, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, Heather. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? So many. I mean, I think it's like the blackouts and the hangovers, but I think one of, in September, this was one of the most recent, my friends, um, one of my best friends' husbands passed away suddenly and her, she, she was drinking too much and her dad was there and he didn't want us drinking or me drinking and I still drank and he was, you know, it just, he was so upset and I think, I mean, of a lot of bad things that had happened in the last, like in that six, eight months, I think down someone's dad who you've known forever i mean that was that was for me like i should have not drank and i and i had to right yeah. to deal with huh. and heather we've all heard of that aha moment when was your oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't drink normally i think it was the conversation like the lot one of the last conversations i had with my boyfriend when he said it'll be okay we'll both stop and i thought i don't think he means this but if we break up then i'm fine and I can continue to drink. Yeah, luckily you had a moment mind. of clarity there. Yeah, and on this day forward, what is your plan in sobriety? I think, you know, I wear this bracelet that I got every day. Like I got, um, it's from this thing called My Intent, and it says clarity. 
and that was when I started the 100 Day Challenge. That's what I, you know, it was sort of my mantra for the year um, or the 100 days. And I think that's that's really that's to keep clarity in everything I do and every decision I make in my relationships. It's just the clarity in that. And I think it's just continuing to, you know, I am going to work the steps and go to more meetings and build more of a sober community um, here. Um, yeah, and that's just the plan going forward. I love it. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? Um, as I mentioned, the recovery elevator. You know, I you know Thank I do. You. I, there's a meeting. That, there's a meeting that I go to um, in LA on Sundays, and it's people that are. And I try. It's my favorite. It's a speaker meeting, and it's people that have 20, 30, 40, 50 years of sobriety, and it's one of the most amazing places. The people are so happy. Like I think there's this misconception that everyone's like sad and angry and just have given up, but the stories that people tell in this room and the things that they've overcome and there's still this light and joy and happiness about them. I mean, I look forward to that meeting every week because it really is, it's, you're not giving up, you're gaining so much more. Right there, quitting drinking is an opportunity, not a sacrifice. I love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are already doing it? I think it's just, you know, you'll find that moment and I think what you gain is so much greater than what you give up. I agree 100% with what you said. And you said you, you'll find that moment. And at episode 52, I mentioned the 10 value bombs that I had learned after your podcasting. There's a window. There's a window of opportunity that presents itself, but the window is finite. It shuts. And it sounds like when that window of opportunity presented itself for you, you walked through it. So nice job. And Heather, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you know your boyfriend is and you've decided to move in with him after nine months and you're, uh, you still don't think you have a problem. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. And congratulations on 269 days of sobriety. That year is coming up pretty quick. Let's take it one day at a time, but you're doing it. You are doing it. Nice job. So earlier in this podcast episode, you hear me mention that depression helps us process emotional losses. One of the biggest emotional losses, and I can only speak from experience with myself, that we're going to have to overcome and cope with is alcohol. I had a user email me a Dear John letter, and I'm waiting for permission from that person before I can read it on the air, but we need to process and grieve the loss of, well, it was my best friend. It was alcohol. Without alcohol, it becomes a lot easier to process these emotional losses. But like I mentioned, I replaced alcohol with work. I didn't really grieve the loss of my best friend, alcohol. In fact, a couple weekends ago, I was at a wedding. Congratulations, Andrew and Colette in New Orleans. And I was standing on the side of the dance floor. Don't worry. Don't worry. I was on the dance floor. There was a great live band. It wasn't like I was sitting life out and not partaking and dancing at the wedding. It wasn't the case. But after many ignored requests from the band to play How's It Gonna Be by Third Eye Blind, I stood on the side of the dance floor and I looked at everybody dancing, people at the bar, drinking their drinks, and I said goodbye. There weren't feelings of, man, it would be cool to have a drink right now. When I do get those feelings, I simply follow the drink, and real quickly, I understand that's a batshit crazy idea. But no, I kind of said goodbye. It felt good. But it was sad at the same time. You don't just say goodbye to a best friend and all is good. But I've realized in three years of sobriety that I still haven't truly said goodbye to alcohol. 
So alcohol, I need to tell you right now on the air, goodbye. I'm not saying goodbye forever. I'm not saying goodbye for good. But I'm saying goodbye only for today on October 9th as I record this. You know what I'm going to tell you tomorrow, alcohol? Take a wild guess. It's going to rhyme with food and high. Good does not rhyme with food. No, it doesn't. You think it would, just the spelling on paper. It does not. Anyways, I'm just going to say goodbye tomorrow on October 10th. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 